socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Ho, 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 and welcome to episode 94 of You Don't Have to Yell. We are creeping up to episode 100. And it is your bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. In last week's episode with Moro Guillen, we talked about how some of the structures in our economy and government would need to change in order to meet the challenges of the coming decade. And I thought it would be interesting to continue down the road of looking at the systems America is built on to answer questions as to why things are the way they are. And so we're going to be doing that for the next couple of episodes. Now, the system we're going to talk about today is one that has led to a decline in health for the average American, a degradation of the environment, and has all been subsidized by the federal government. Any guesses? Okay, it could really be a lot of things, but today we are talking about the Farm Bill, which you probably could have guessed since it's in the title and description, but whatever, I tried. I invited Chris Basso, Professor of Public Policy and Associate Director of the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Boston's Northeastern University, Go Huskies, who has dedicated much of his career towards studying America's farm policy to discuss how we got here and what we can do to correct things. And as it turns out, this is one of the rare instances where diehard partisanship might make reform easier. Kind of. I'll be back at the end with final thoughts. Before we get into to, to the subject in depth, maybe just a level set for the folks listening. Why should folks care about the United States agricultural policies? Well, it's you know, it's a great question. It's a question that you know I always ask my students because you know I teach at a large urban university, and so mm-hmm. you know why would you why should we in large urban universities or in urban America care about agricultural policy? And the and the short answer is. Agricultural policies shape our food system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, the agricultural policies, that mix of laws and programs and subsidies, direct and indirect subsidies, you know, and all kinds of other kinds of rules, regulations, um, you know, that have direct and indirect impacts on how our food system looks and the food it produces, the, um, you know, the types of foods that you know, we have both, you know, and, and, and so without, if we, so basically we need to understand agricultural policy because that shapes our food system and we all eat. Um, (laughs) And so, and if you leave agricultural policy only to those who produce the food, that's going to be a one-sided sort of equation because the the people who need to understand agricultural policy are the people who eat the food as much as those who produce it. It's funny you bring that up too, because one of the things we talked about before this episode was the the big shift in agricultural policy over the years. And and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. You're kind of the deputized smart guy of the conversation. <laughs> but, you know, my understanding is that it was maybe lack of a uniform agricultural policy that led to the Dust Bowl 
and ultimately led to the first really federal or the first federal effort to regulate agriculture in the 1930s under Roosevelt. Is that right? More or less. I mean, you know, there was agricultural policy prior to the 1930s. It was mostly in the form of, you know, going back to the 19th century. I mean, the first agricultural policy we had was giving land to people to farm. That was agricultural policy or creating the land grant university. So that was the 19th century. And that was to really create a class of people to grow food, farmers in the Midwest, mm-hmm. especially, um, and to, you know, and to, and so agricultural policy, such as it was, was really focused on production, producing mm-hmm. food, maximizing production to feed urban, growing urban populations. Um, what begins to happen in the 1920s and early 30s is that farmers are producing far more food than we can eat. Mm-hmm. It's, again, they're too efficient. I mean, mechanization, technology, all kinds of stuff. We go from being essentially a society of, you know, small, you know, sort of family farmers who feed themselves and maybe sell their surplus to essentially larger and larger, more mechanized operations, you know, because this is when you start getting tractors and you start getting, you know, the entire, again, the commercialization of agriculture, early 20th century. And up until World War One. Farmers were producing enough food that was being consumed by consumers that they were getting a good price for the crop. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, all, the, all, the, all the farmers could produce was being either eaten domestically or exported. So it was that sweet spot for farmers, early 20th century. The farmers, even today, the farmers talk about the farm, the farm lobby talks about you know, sort of the age of parity, they called it, you know, the sort of the notion that farmers got a good price for their crops because and you know, because it was all used up. After World War One, well, there was a couple of things that happened, and, and and that you know, farmers kept producing tons and tons of food because they got incentivized to produce more during the war to feed, you know, their, you know, to feed the armies and to feed allies during World War One, and they were producing a massive amount of food. But then domestic consumption slacks off in part because immigration slacks off. You have we don't have this, the same population growth in the twenties and thirties that we had prior to that time. So you have declines in domestic consumption. You've almost no exporting going on because of, you know, the, the post-war sort of, you know, economy, but also because, you know, you know the, 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 the economies of Europe are beginning to recover, you know, but, and so they're not as much exporting. So what you're ending up with is, and this is the, where I'm getting to get to the point, farmers are producing far more food collectively than can be consumed. And when that happens... Um, the the price per pound for say corn or wheat drops. It's a surplus, and when you have surpluses, yeah. the price per unit drops. Which means that if you're a farmer, you're getting less money for what you produce, and if you're not lucky, you're losing money. You know, only the larger operations are able to survive because they can cut their costs. You know, but if you're mm-hmm. a small operation, you're going out of business. And this is what begins to happen. In fact, the depression hits the farm sector in the 20s earlier than everywhere else because they're the ones getting hit hard. And so to try to do as much as possible, this leads to the Dust Bowl, farmers are beginning to plow all land they have, even land they shouldn't have plowed, which is very thin or thin soil. And then, of course, you get the droughts and you get the Dust Bowls. And so the Dust Bowl is the, and this is a cautionary tale, the Dust Bowl really is the result of overproduction on land that should not have been produced during periods of, of essentially drought. And then, and so what happens 
this, and this gets us to the New Deal period. So the, the, the New Deal period is the period where the Roosevelt administration is trying to do a couple of things. One, control production a bit to reduce overproduction. Because if, if you leave farmers alone and let them produce as much as they want, they'll do that. They're rational actors. You know? But if everybody out overproduces or maximizes production and there's not enough consumption, you're going to have the same cycle of surplus, overproduction, mm-hmm. surplus, and dropping prices. So the Roosevelt administration and Congress and the Roosevelt administ- administration under the initial agricultural policies, the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, and then you know, 34, and then later on 38, but that's you know, you know, 39. 39 is the big one. But anyway, but the point is, is that um, New Deal era agricultural policy is focused on production control. Mm-hmm. Let's create policies that reduce production, at least, at least enough, um, to take the pressure off the surplus. So we'll pay farmers not to produce food, which seems crazy until you think about that if we guarantee a farmer a certain return on investment for a certain number of acres, and we tell the farmer, we'll pay you not to farm, say, say your farmer has 100 acres, We'll tell the farmer, we'll pay you not to farm the 25 marginal acres. You can farm the other 75 acres. That sort of reduces production. It, 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 so it's a, it's, a, it's a notion of supply management, which was intended to reduce surpluses yeah. and, to, and to reduce this perverse incentive that farmers have to outproduce out, out or maximize production. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's sort of the gist of the dilemma. Is how do you enable farmers to produce enough to make a living, but all, and also provide enough food? So we go through this period of supply control. Then, during the Nixon administration, it almost seems like that's that's all flipped on its head. Yeah. And now, instead of the government paying for uh, farmers to control production, effectively saying you don't produce this, you're still guaranteed this money. It's changed to produce as much as you want, and we'll buy the extra. Yeah, and that might be an oversimplification, but yeah, I mean, the Nick, what happens in Nixon administration is the final end of production management. It begins to you know you know this is contested because you know to oversimplify, you know, Republicans over the forties and fifties into the sixties tended to support max tended to support a policy of and this would be under Eisenhower, for example, tended to support a policy of. Produce as much as you want, let the market figure it out. We'll export the surplus or use it in other ways. That's sort of like they didn't believe in supply management. They saw it as Stalinist kind of, you know, kind of approaches. I mean, they, whereas, and they tended to, it it wasn't just because they were Republicans or conservatives, Republican more than conservative in this case. It's because they tend to represent regions of the country, the, the, the agrarian belt of the Midwest in particular, where they were producing corn and wheat and you know, cat, you know, cattle, especially corn and wheat in those days, and soy eventually, the kinds of row crops that were amenable to large mechanized operations that were open to you know, really efficiency stand, uh, gains. Whereas the Democrats, who were typically more in the South at that time, the Southern Democrats and some Northern Democrats, New England, Upper Midwestern Democrats, who typically more represented smaller operations that were producing things like sugar and cotton and peanuts or in the North dairy or fruits and vegetables tended to want more supply management because the worlds they lived in were very different. I mean, and so you have two competing philosophies about how to approach this. And, And so you had 
over the period of the 40s through the late 60s, the slow decline of the supply management approach, because the idea of paying farmers not to produce food seemed to a lot of people ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was an easy butt of, of ridicule because you're basically we're saying, oh, we're going to pay you not to do something. Um, and so by the time you get to the 70s, the supply management world, the supply art management argument had sort of lost ground, except maybe in a few small areas like dairy. Um, and so by the time Nixon comes along uh, under a secretary, Earl Butts, um, um, you know, they basically said, you know, in so many words, we're going to get rid of the supply management notion finally for once and for all. Farmers produce as much as you want. We'll export huge export markets. We'll promote exports. We'll promote, you know, using up as much of the surpluses as possible in other ways, either exports or this is where you begin. It's not a surprise that this is where you see the beginning of the, you know, the sort of inexpensive meat uh, narrative in America. It says when you have lots and lots and lots of corn and soy and wheat to feed cattle and it's inexpensive, you begin to see how that translates into cheaper meat. Yeah. And is it, is it overly simplistic too to say that you can trace a lot of our health ills today. So whether it's obesity or, or type two diabetes back to that decision to introduce or to effectively suppress food, food, depress food prices and introduce large yeah. volumes of, of, yeah. of meat and corn yeah. and whatnot I mean, into the American diet. Yeah. I, I have to be careful here, but by not suggesting that policy changes alone, were, were, you know, I mean, we were getting tremendously efficient even before changes in policies at producing a lot more food on less land or less space. I mean, technology had a lot to do with it. Use of mm -hmm. chemical inputs, you know, new kinds of machinery. So, you know, one could argue that, you know, but, but certainly, you know, I think the policy of essentially maximizing production, as Bertel Butts said, you know, basically, you know, you know, plow fence row to fence row with no restrictions, certainly then adds to a, the sort of shift in the agricultural sector's capacity to produce, you know, and, and or at least willingness to produce. And you get, you know, essentially, you, you can pinpoint at that time as you see this pivot, not, it's not a dramatic pivot begins to happen, where we just get a lot more uh, commodity food produced. I mean, a lot more grain, especially grain. Yeah. Um, and when you get a lot more grain produced, that far exceeds your basic needs. And that's, you know, obviously, what does that mean? Um, what do you do with all the excess grain? Well, you feed it to animals. And that's where you begin to see, or you produce, in the case of corn, high fructose corn syrup. You know, um, in fact, it's no surprise that Coca-Cola and, you know, the, 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 the beverage manufacturers switched to high fructose corn syrup from, away from cane sugar about that time in the early 80s because it's cheaper. And beet sugar too, not just, you know, not just corn sugar. Um, you know, so, you, you, so one could argue that the changes in policy had some additive role to play in what was already happening, and it probably accelerated it. So by the time, and, and there's plenty of data about, you see this, in fact, begin, beginning early 80s, this beginning spike in, in, in essentially the amount, number of calories entering the American diet. Yeah. Because it's available. You know, it, it enables, if I'm, if I'm McDonald's, and suddenly, I have really inexpensive commodity prices for meat, especially. 
well, that enables me to, to that enables me to create the Big Mac. Yeah. And, and, and it enables me, you know, inexpensive potato prices enables me to do supersizing you know, French fries. Um, you know, so that's where you begin to see. And of course, high, corn syrup enables me to supersize sodas. And that's implicated in, and, and there's a lot of literature on this about the, the, the growing portion sizes we see in restaurants also ends up reflecting in increased weight gain because we have, we as human beings tend to eat what's in front of us. Mm-hmm. And the portions, and the portions get larger. We just we just continue to eat the entire portion. Yeah, you know it's funny. Like as you're saying this too, I'm thinking about the fitness craze, mm-hmm. and it actually started right in the 1980s. So yeah. it wasn't it wasn't until the, the 80s that you saw aerobics, jogging, workout tapes. Well, I mean, the, like right, like Richard boom. Simmons was kind of yeah. the canary in the coal mine right. here. Well, this is what happens when the baby boom generation sort of starts getting past 20s, their 20s. And they oh, start true. hitting the baby boom generation, of which I am a part, begins to hit middle age around the early 80s. The, old, the older boomers start hitting, you know, their you know, 40s, yeah. um, 30s and 40s. They're all, and so and they're all sedentary jobs, you know, and so they're, and they're eating more calories. And suddenly, so they, one could argue that that's sort of these intersections of a generational shift uh, to and also just the, the nature of work changes. You're no longer doing, yeah. you know, the same kind of work. So we're not burning calories like we used to. Um, you know, um, we're, you know, and and if you have more calories coming in and you're burning less, fewer calories, well, we know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny too because as I'm, you know, kind of absorbing everything you're saying too, it it, it sounds like this is as much if not more a story about innovation and more a story about the impact of technology on the food supply than it is really government controls influencing oh, yeah. Yeah. is that i mean i think that's correct i mean i always tell them i when i teach my court i teach a course on food systems and public policy and i always start the class out with a basic reminder to the students that we live in an age where for most of us in this country food is cheap and inexpensive in a way that in human history terms cheap in terms of percentage of our net incomes. And I have a, a, a sort of a, 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 a mantra, it's called, we have a food system today that gives most of us, and I always say most, because we have a certain percentage of the population that's you know, food insecure, even hungry. Um, but for most of us in this country, the food system gives us what we want, when we want it, at a price we want to pay. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, that's a, in human history terms, that's a miracle. Yeah. You know, that's amazing. And I always remind my students, whatever critique you have of the food system, remember that elemental point that for most of us, we, can, we, we have widely available food, probably too much, um, very diverse. In fact, one of the problems we have is deciding what to eat each night. Mm-hmm. You know, it's convenient. It's tasty. You know, it's, you know, it's also, uh, you know, Seasonally, we no longer are relying on the seasons. If I want if I want raspberries in January, I can get them. You know, fresh raspberries, I can get them. They're flown in from Peru or something like that. So I think before, you know, so I always remind the students that we have, in some respects, this 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 amazing system, primarily because of technology and efficiency system. There's all kinds of reasons why it's a marvel. And I always remind people that. But then, okay, then I ask, okay, what are the what are the sort of the, the pathologies or the downsides of the system? And that's where we need to, that's why as consumers and as people live in cities, especially, 
um, or metropolitan areas, we need to be mindful of agricultural policy that tends to create perverse incentives, you know, that have long-term impacts on health environment, you know, the, the ability of small town America to survive and all kinds of other things. Yeah. One of the, one of the stats that I, that came up in an earlier episode was the fact that, you know, 30% of the food produced never actually is consumed. Oh yeah. And, and which has enormous impacts. Oh yeah. I mean, there is always, there's a bit of, there's a bit of waste in the system. Now we have to make a distinction between food waste. That is the side side products of processing, for example, or cooking versus food that is you know, served to a consumer or made by a consumer, but never eaten. Those are two different things. Both happen. I mean, if you, again, if you give people huge you know, portions, a lot of them are not going to finish the whole thing. Um, yeah. But you know, there's also the waste in the system just as the nature of, the nature of, of processing, for example. Um, although the, you know, the producers are spending a lot of time and money reducing that kind of food waste. The big trick is the consumer food waste. Yeah. Like that's, that's the big area. Um, well, yeah, it's it, honestly, this is, this is the second episode I've done this in, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, which is there is a huge bone of contention in my house over leftovers. Mm-hmm. And I am of the, we are not cooking or ordering anything until you eat the pasta in the fridge. Right. Uh, I am, I'm, I'm a, I'm that, I'm a big, uh, I'm, I'm the big proponent of that, that side of things. And, uh, so needless to say, I just use this as an opportunity to give another academic plug for my family policy and yes. let my kids know That's to right. eat, their, eat their leftovers. Um, um, go I on, mean, sorry. I'm from, a, I'm from a generation that there were no leftovers because the family was large enough that, you know, but yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 One, one thing, one thing as well that you, that, that you mentioned there and, and I think kind of tease up mm-hmm. my, my next question is is the environmental impact of all this um because it's it's partially the you know the food waste is obviously a, a big factor right but there are are a number of environmental impacts to the current production focused policy mm-hmm. right yeah. yeah huge um i mean after all we're talking about industrial scale agriculture here i mean you know you know it, it's an industrial system i mean in order to produce this much food for this many people um, at, 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 at such a low marginal cost by comparison. Um, um, it's, it's industrial scale. And like any industrial system, it's going to have what economists would call externalities, what we would call things like waste, pollution, mm-hmm. et cetera. So for example, um, you know, if you want, you know, the sort of, you know, I'll use my example, the $3.99 or was it $4.99 Costco chicken, industrial mm-hmm. chicken? Yeah. Well, you know, you think about how amazing that is in one level. And then you think, how do you get there? And then what are the effects? Well, in order to get there, you need massive chicken operations. Mm-hmm. Guess what? All those chickens produce waste. Um, use the equivalent for hogs, steers, you know, any equivalent. So there's big concentrated animal feeding operations in the Midwest and the Plain States close to where all the, you know, the feed is. That's why they're there. Or in Carolinas and hogs or wherever, um, you know, they're, they're industrial scale because, you know, in many respects, they want to, you know, they want to feed, they want to give us what we want. We want cheap meat. Mm-hmm. That's what we've come to demand in this country and elsewhere around the world increasingly. To do that, you need industrial scale. To get industrial scale, you know, when you get industrial scale, you have massive externalities, massive side effects. You know, you know, give one just example. I mean, if you're in, you know, Iowa increasingly is 
having tremendous problems with water pollution from concentrated animal feeding operations because they're such so large and there's so many of them that you know the groundwater contamination from from animal waste is a big problem now in Iowa. Um, you know the, the city of Des Moines literally was suing the agricultural sector over the water pollution of the drinking water from animal, you know, from agricultural runoff. And it's not just animal, it's, it's overuse of, it's overuse of chemicals because in order to maintain production on the same land, as you degrade the land and its nutrients, you have to add more fertilizers, you have to add more pesticides, you have to add more, you know, so the inputs, you know, on, on row crop agriculture, things like pesticides and fertilizers, you know, they don't all get, you know, farmers, you like to think the farmers use only enough to get by, but oftentimes, as often as the case, they overdo it. And it, you know, the excess goes off into the drinking water or goes off into the rivers, which then empty into the Mississippi, which then empty into the Gulf of Mexico, which creates the dead zones. Um, you, you have soil loss. I mean, agriculture is a huge uh, contributor, um, you know, and this is contested, but it's a huge contributor to uh, climate change to ecological degradation of soil of water. It's sucking up, you know, uh, you know, in some parts of the, of the Midwest, it's sucking up the aquifers to irrigate the land. So, I mean, and, and again, any individual farmer is just trying to survive. Yeah. But the cumulative effect of the sort of vicious cycle that we're on is massive ecological destruction um, or contributions to climate change. Um, and, you know, we have things like overuse of anti antibiotics and animal production, because mm -hmm. um, we have large animal concentration, uh, concentrated animal operations. You oftentimes have what they call prophylactic use of antibiotics on animals because they're close confined, they get sick. A sick mm -hmm. animal is not an animal that you make any money on, so you want to avoid that. Yeah. And so there's a lot of concern of the overuse of antibiotics in, in animal agriculture with consequent impacts on the drinking water, like I said, or... On human health is, you know, no one really understands the extent to which overuse of antibiotics in agriculture impacts antibiotic resistance in human beings. Yeah, because some of that passes through the animal. Right. And, and I mean, it's, yeah. it's not quite clear, but there are concerns about it. And so I think what we're seeing here, it's not agriculture, you know, agriculture by itself is always going to have impacts on the, on, on the environment. How can it not? You know, yeah. That's sort of, it's, it's the industrial scale. It's the hyper focus on efficiency. It's the hyper focus on maximizing production over all other all other values that mm -hmm. contributes to what we've seen is the accelerated scale of ecological impacts, and I would argue also health impacts down the road. Forty percent, folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, 
but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. Sounds like, to, to kind of bring it back to where we started off, you know, our, our agricultural policy was initially made in response to an environmental crisis, and it seems like it's now almost creating one in a right, way. Right, I mean, that's the critique. I mean, you know, we've got a system that is essentially hyper-focused, like I said, in maximizing production. Yeah. Um, and again, if I'm an individual farmer, you know, I, I want to put myself in the shoes of an individual corn grower. And you know, my wife has family back in Illinois that you know, grows corn and soybeans. You know, from their perspective, they don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. They need to they need to maximize their production to 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 you know to to either you know pay their cost of production or in many cases you know a lot of you know a lot of farmers rent land they don't own the land. Yeah, we don't know that in New England, we don't really understand that point. But a lot of farmers in the Midwest, especially big grain production operations, um, you know, I, there's a huge percentage that are essentially tenants. So they, they rent the land, they have to pay rent. And yeah. so if you have to pay rent on your land, uh, cash rent, then you're going to make sure you maximize your production. Because, you know, if, when you plant your crop in, in, in March or April, you don't know what price you're going to get in October. Mm-hmm. So you have every incentive, unless someone pays you, you have every incentive to maximize your own production. You know, you don't have any, and let, so unless the government literally pays you not to do something, to set aside land, or, to, or, or puts a quota on what you can produce, which is the equivalent to manage the price, uh, you know, there's no incentive for an individual farmer to not produce. Yeah, and so... Is there, and also you also might go out of business if you don't produce enough, and and you know you know so you know, get bigger, get out was really what happens in the seventies. It's literally get bigger, get out. So you see the consolidation of agriculture happening, really accelerating in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, and so what? It, how how's that unwound? How do you how do you reverse that, or how do you get it back to a point? Yeah, where- that's a good question. Um, you know, again, I you know again. And I want to remind people, it depends where you are. If you, New England, we, we don't really have that kind of agriculture for the most part. Yeah. You have small farmers, small farms typically that are feeding urban populations fruits and vegetables for the most part, some dairy still. Dairy is the one area that got hit hard in New England, you know, commodity agriculture. But you know, maybe potatoes in Maine. But you know, for the most part, New England is a separate space. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to the Midwest, the big grain uh, upper basket. And there, it's real. It's a real dilemma. I mean, one can argue that if minimum, what we need to do is get rid of some of the perverse uh, incentives. For example, we literally have in law the renewable fuel standard, which mandates that refiners include in the refining a certain percentage of ethanol in producing fuel for cars. Mm-hmm. Well, most ethanol in this country is coming from corn. Forty percent of the corn crop in this country goes to ethanol. 
Most environmentalists think this is bad environmental policy. Economists think it's bad economic policy. And it's bad food policy. We're essentially paying farmers, we're essentially incentivizing farmers to overproduce corn on land and degrade the soil, do all these things, to turn it into fuel. Um, so I would, you know, and because I'm not running for office in Iowa, I think I can say this. Uh, I would say get rid of the renewable fuel standard. I don't think it makes much sense. Our cars are far more efficient. We're moving toward hybrids and electric anyway. So the idea of 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 having our 40% of our corn crop go to ethanol makes no sense to me. And also it over incentivizes the production of corn. And, and ethanol, a lot of ethanol production happens in near the corn crops and using up water. I mean, you use up a lot of water to make ethanol. You know, converting, you're converting, again, you're converting corn into fuel. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's huge ecological impacts. It's what impacts on the water table and water availability. It's lousy environmental policy. It's lousy energy policy. And it's bad food policy. So that's just one thing right there I would do. I get rid of that. Um, I also might bring, you're not going to, I think production, production controls are tricky and I'm not sure that's a good area to go. What I might do is expand on conservation restrictions, conservation payments really expand. There are programs the USDA has to pay farmers not to uh, uh, not to produce on marginal, on ecologically sensitive lands. I would, mm-hmm. I would expand that. I think we yeah. just are allowing too much ecologically sensitive land to be farmed. Yeah. Uh, and that's, again, the, the Dust Bowl example. Because a lot of the ecological, a lot of the conservation practices that got put into place starting the 30s through the 70s, you know, you know, you know, you know, alternating crops or having buffer zones or having trees planted, those all got taken out starting in the 70s. Because again, if I've got if I've got 700 acres and maybe 20 acres are in 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 trees as as wind buffers, that 20 acres is lost revenue as far as I'm concerned. So I might, unless someone pays me otherwise, yeah, I might take that down. And that's what happened. Yeah, I've heard, and, and maybe you can help me understand this. One of the things I've heard a lot about is just the degradation of topsoil or yeah. the erosion of topsoil through the years. Yeah, and, and how our, Yeah, and so it's effectively, it's again, it's this incentive around overproduction that drives farmers to practice methods that ultimately degrade the soil and, mm-hmm. and effectively or eventually will reach the point where it's more or less unusable. Right. I mean, soil, unfor- yeah, I think that's right, especially in the grain production areas of the Midwest, you've seen massive losses of soil um, in the Mississippi Valley, Mississippi, Missouri River Valleys, places like Iowa, Illinois, lots of topsoil loss um, over, the, over the last 100 years, especially in the last 30, 40 years. And, you know, and because, again, they're using technologies that enable them to produce more, you know, with, you know, with le- on less land, but also because, you know, you know, if you're treating the soil every year basically as a template, and you're not giving it opportunity to rest, you're not you're not you're not planting alternating, uh, you know, say corn with alfalfa. If you're not you know doing you know essentially what they call regenerative agriculture kinds of practices, things that farmers used to do a lot more on their own back in the old days, mm-hmm. um, you know, because that was the way you you sort of you you you, you preserved your soil. But if your incentive structure as a farmer is to produce every year on the same land, the same crop, because that's what you get. I mean, again, again, I'm putting myself in the shoes of, an, of a farmer in, our, in Iowa or Illinois who's growing corn. Well, I'm either going to grow corn or I'm going to grow soy. Yeah. I'm not going to grow kiwi fruit. Yeah. 
I don't have that ability. I don't have the yeah. ability to grow. You know, you know, why don't they grow broccoli? Someone says, well, you know, they they could, but they would not make enough money. I mean, you know, they, and so, you know, these are big operations. And so, I, and that's why a lot of these operations have turned to, you know, essentially a lot of the, a lot of them have also turned to having, you know, concentrated animal feeding operations on their, on their land, just because it provides revenue streams. Yeah. Which also then degrades the soil and the water and everything else. So it's, you see this perverse incentives happening. Yeah. And it, it seems too like the, the political environment, oddly enough, and this is going to sound really weird coming out of my mouth because for the folks who've listened, who've been listening, but you know, this is the one situation where I think our current political climate actually might be opening the door to something getting done. And, and you can validate this for me because from what I've, what I've, what I've heard of you, what I've, what I've read of your work and what I've, what I've, what I've heard of your, your, your talks is that the, you know, the last few decades of farm policy have been this marriage of uh, SNAP benefits which the Democrats are in favor of, and farm subsidies, which the Republicans are in favor of. And it seems like the, the, the politics around that are changing to the point where the farmers don't really have any friends anymore because the Democrats have walked away because they really don't stand a chance of, mm -hmm. of being elected in most rural districts. And the Republicans, for some reason I don't understand, have started to vote against the farm bill despite the fact that it happens to serve districts that are heavily favored by them. So right. can, am I, can you well, explain take, that me, a little bit? Let me take the, let me take, well, what's happened is, and, and the farm bill is a perfect example of what's happened to our politics over the last, you know, 40 years, especially. Um, you're right. I mean, the Democratic Party, once Southern Democrats were more rural, moved toward Republican with the civil mm -hmm. rights, you know, after the civil rights era, and we can't, we might as well just be upfront and say Southern Democrats typically were conservative. They typically were more segregationist. Uh, they were rural, but they were, you know, they were certainly no liberals. They were not liberals. Um, yeah. Once the movement of the, of the Southern Democrats toward Republican Party begins to happen, you see Democrats starting losing rural seats. You also see uh, conservative rural Democrats in other parts of the country starting to be replaced by conservative rural Republicans. Mm -hmm. Usually over cultural issues, not you know, and this is the part that that's interesting is that as, as the percentage, and this is also tied to a lot of these districts are rural, but they don't have many farmers anymore. Because what's what also happens happens at the same time is that the number of people who farm is plummeting. I mean, only one point seven percent of Americans farm. I mean, it's that's an infinitesimal size number of people. And there, yeah. so you have all these large, you can go to a place like the first district in, in Iowa, the big, they call it the big one, uh, you know, the, uh, and because it's the largest congressional district by size in the country. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, and it's certainly farm, it's farm district, but there are not that many farmers because, you know, the number of people who farm has dropped. So you can have one person, you know, on 3000 acres. So mm -hmm. who's voting in these districts? They're, they're mostly ex-urban service workers mm -hmm. in places like Wichita or Topeka who may, in fact, work in food-related industries or ag-related industries, but not farmers. Um, or they're more likely working in service sectors that are non-agriculture-related. But the point is, is that 
they're oftentimes going to be voting on social issues, you know, abortion, you know, know, anti-Obamacare, those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, And so it's not the Republican Party may represent rural districts, but they're not necessarily representing farmers. Yeah. It's like even. Yeah. Good. So I didn't mean to interrupt. It's like even in farm country, the farmers are still outnumbered is effectively what I'm Essentially. And that's why, for example, in the 2014 farm bill that I studied, all four members of Congress from Iowa, four Republicans, all voted against the farm bill and nobody paid a price, at least initially. I mean, you know, and so, I mean, down the road, one member did eventually lose a reelection. But he lost it because he was perceived to be essentially, uh, you know, so rigid that, you know, he couldn't make friends with anybody. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, but the lesson was that you can vote against the farm bill and you're from Iowa and you can get reelected. That's that was stu- that was amazing. And that was the point is that the Republican Party had moved to be a party of exurban you know, beyond the immediate suburbs, exurban, you know, sort of sprawling exurban spaces in the South and Southwest or suburban, you know, and they represented districts that were, you know, rural, like I said, but there's not many farmers. And in fact, one of the stories that we don't pay attention to in this part of the country, especially is the hollowing out of small town America in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. um, because there's fewer people there and they've all left to go to the big cities and you still have these massive farms, but, you know, you don't need to live there. Yeah, it's you know it's it's fascinating the way you're the, the the way you're describing this because you know I think a lot of times when we when we think of let's call it American regions in decline you know very often we're looking at the, the Rust Belt we're looking mm-hmm. at industrial towns across you know, Michigan Ohio Indiana so on um, it, we don't think about sort of rural decay in a way where. Oh, yeah. And due to just like just like automation, just like technology, uh, made uh, the need for uh, or, or or reduced the need for labor and manufacturing. In the same way, technology's done the same in rural America for farming, and that's created this sort of uh, you know this exodus in a way. If, oh, I'm, yeah. if I'm hearing you correctly, right? And it's been aided by, of course, other things going on. For example, small town America downtowns get hollowed out by Walmart or by the you know whatever mall gets built. So you have all these things happening that essentially are conspiring to hollow out small town America in these parts of the country. Yeah, and and yeah. and leaving behind only essentially the elderly. You know, and, 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 and a few farmers, but they vote conservative. They vote, they're, that's, you know, that's where they are culturally conservative. And, yeah. but there's, and so there's a disconnect right now be, between, in some respects between, you know, the, some of the real needs in the farm belt and some of the policies getting enacted or being, you know, you know by, and, and, and right now the Republican Party is sort of dominated by cultural conservatives who are less willing to make you know, compromises, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Now, I don't want to paint too broad a brush, but I think, we, I think we've seen that. And I began to see it in the 2014 Farm Bill, but it's sort of manifested itself since, that a lot of, uh, and I'll get to the Democrats in a second, but a lot of Republicans now are from these very culturally conservative, homogenous districts. Um, I'm talking about the House members especially who have no, they don't have any incentive to compromise because they don't get elected that they get elected from a very narrow swath of a very conservative party. I think we've seen that. Um, 
Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans are a little bit different because they oftentimes elect from larger, you know, they're elected from states. So they actually may be a little bit more, many of them are a bit different, although that's, you know, they're also beginning to reflect that same tension within the party. I mean, the big story in the last 40 years is the Republican Party. I think we all know that. Yeah. Um, one party has shifted very far to the left, to the right. Now, the Democratic Party, you know, you know, became at the same time became more of a party of urban and suburban America, um, you know, and 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 obviously more diverse internally um, and, and more to the left. But it sh- the Democratic Party shift to the left was a lot, lot less pronounced than the Republican Party shift to the right in terms of just the movement. So, you know, and it's, so it's true. But the, big, the truth for Democrats is they've lost most rural Democrats have been replaced by rural Republicans. So they don't have that voice, especially except in places like New England, they don't have a voice for rural America as much. And it's not because Democrats abandoned rural America so much as that rural America abandoned Democrats. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, so- and that's sort of the sto- one of the stories. And so the, so the dilemma is, is, how do you put together a coalition of support that can do certain things? And so the SNAP program slash farm program connection was the, the glue holding it together to, you know, and marriage of convenience, if you will, that sort of, you know, Democrats would say, liberals, we call them liberal, liberals would say, all right, you want your farm programs, your subsidies, your insurance programs, your other kinds of farm programs, fine. But you better have in it something for nutrition. And, and so SNAP becomes the litmus test for Democrats, especially at the welfare reform of the, 19, of the 1990s. For, for Democrats, for liberals broadly, SNAP is non-negotiable. Thou shalt support SNAP or else we mm-hmm. will not support your stuff. Yeah. And what do the farmers feel about all this? Because are, are, they, are they concerned? Are they advocating for policies? Or is it just kind of, you know, is this just they, they kind of have to do this to survive, and so they're just yeah, heads I think, down. I think that I think the, the the politically sophisticated ones in the farm sector understand that if they don't have allies among urban America, they're going to be on their own. And by the way, they're going to be on their own not just against liberals. Yeah, they're going to be on their own against a lot of libertarian conservatives who want to get rid of the farm programs too. Yeah, I mean that's it was funny. Like when I when I opened up the the question, I was thinking to myself, well, you have a Republican Party that really isn't all that concerned anymore with earning the votes of rural America because they've got it on social issues. You have a Democratic Party that isn't so interested in supporting the interests of rural America because they don't stand a chance there. And so my feeling was it really opened the door for some potential reforms mm-hmm. uh, that might you know, that might help move the policy in a better direction. But yeah. it sounds to me like there's an equal peril here, which is that now that the Republicans don't need a farm bill to win votes in rural rural districts, they also don't need to vote for SNAP either. Yeah. And so it almost seems like there is a um, there's a potential for either great reform or a potential for us to lose both. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, that's, and this is why the, the, this is why the, this year, next year, the Biden administration can be pivotal. Right now, Biden's making efforts to reach out to rural America. I mean, the, the, you know, he's, re- he's making efforts to say, look, on infrastructure, on other things, you know, the, Biden's instincts are to sort of work with people. I mean, that's his instincts. He's not going to. So, you know, um, so if you look at what they're trying to do with things like rural infrastructure, rural broadband, if you've seen what they're trying to do on 
creating more incentives for farmers to do ecologically more, you know, sort of uh, sensible things, or not sensible, but sort of, you know, farming practices that are less ecologically destructive, or farmers contributing to climate change mitigation adaptation. I mean, there's sort of outreach there that's happening in the, in the Biden administration to rural America, to farmers. What's the question is going to, and I think a lot of people in the, in the, in the ag belt are like responsive at least to some degree, although they're suspicious of, you know, there's a lot of nitty gritty in agricultural policy that make your eyes glaze over stuff, believe me. But for example, a lot of farmers worried that Biden's going to raise the capital gains tax and inheritance taxes. You know, although most farmers are already covered by exemptions on that anyway. So, but there's always these litmus tests. Um, So it could go two ways. And this is the classic on one hand, on the other hand. I mean, uh, if, if Biden is able to, um, you know, do some, make some headway with rural America, with rural, rural Republicans in particular, um, then there's opportunities for reforms. The problem is that Democrats don't have much of a margin for maneuver in Congress mm. right now, especially in the, in the House or Senate. There's very narrow margins, the narrowest margins in history, probably. Um, and that the de- and Republicans don't necessarily see any incentive to compromise mm-hmm. because they're having their own. Last we checked, their, their own uh, sort of issues internally. Yeah, um, yeah. With he who shall not be named. Um, yes. And so, and, and and I think we don't underestimate to the degree to which that is hanging over the Republican Party. Of you know, you know, there's a lot of Republicans who I think. There are Republicans in Congress who would like to cut, to like compromise and, and make deals, mm-hmm. but they're afraid of the right wing. They're afraid of the right. They're afraid of getting pr- primaried by even more conservative people. And so I, I, I really, although right now is an opportunity for compromises and for, for reforms, I'm wondering whether the political substance is there, the political room for maneuver is there to actually do it. It's, it's going to be tricky. It, you, yeah. know, you can get some of this done in the budget. Consult, you, can, you can do some of this through the budget where you only need a majority vote, very narrow margins. You can do it. We saw that with the pandemic stimulus packages that, that Biden passed, the Democrats passed oh, with, no, with no Republican votes. Um, but that's not going to happen on, on quote, regular legislation where you're going to need bipartisan majorities. Especially yeah. right now, where the Democrats don't literally have enough margin to do it on their own. Yeah, and this is something too that 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 really comes up a ton on this show, which is the incentives of both parties. Um, the incentives of both parties are such that their goal, when in the minority, is to keep the other party from doing anything, mm-hmm. and so that means positive for their own districts. The goal is really to stall, and that's yeah, really where right. we are now. Yeah. Um, and, and to put like sort of an urgency meter on this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the the health consequences are obvious, and you know, one of the things that's that I think is clear from this conversation too is it it spirals into a number of different areas. You know, so for example, rising healthcare costs. Well. It's a direct yeah. result of, of obesity and a direct result Diabetes. of diabetes. Oh, yeah. 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 And so, so it's not like it's, it's our, our, our policy isn't isolated to this one specific area. Um, but when we look at the, the, that aspect, when we look at the environmental consequences, like how long do we have, how long do we have before it gets, before we sort of get in the red zone? 
so to speak. Well, so one could argue, one can argue that in some sec- sec- sectors of agriculture, we're already in the red zone. Um, you know, we've got, I mean, we're entering, uh, climate change is contributing to the acceleration of drought mm-hmm. in some parts of the country, the acceleration of excess weather events in other parts of the country that make it harder to, I mean, there's, and, and there's real concerns that we've already gone past in, in some areas in, in, in the agricultural sector. Um, we've already into the red zone in terms of the capacity of the land to sustain itself or to be sustained and sustain production, um, mm. or the water. I mean, you know, you, you don't, I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, we've taken the world's richest farmland in some respects in the Midwest and degraded it. And we've sucked the aquifers dry in many parts of the country of, you know, of water that was in there for, for jet for, you know, thousands of years mm-hmm. and, or, or millions in some cases. And that's not going to be replenished anytime soon. And so I, this, I, think, I think we have reached a critical stage in, in agriculture in this country, and not just in this country, globally, um, mm-hmm. where if we don't start changing practices, but also, to be blunt, um, we're not going to let consumers off the hook. Because if we want our, you know, to be blunt, and, and, and I, I eat meat, but I'll be blunt. If we want the, you know, all you can eat you know, meat at the buffet, or if we want the, the cheapest meat possible, mm-hmm. um, we're contributing because meat production by itself is the most ecologically, you know, has the greatest ecological, uh, you know, uh, impacts in whether it's, you know, the, just the overproduction of, of food, of, of grain, the loss of, of water, you know, production of, of meat in terms of its ecological impacts in terms of climate, you know, methane, you know, waste, you know, I think it's the, it's the meat side of this equation, the trickiest part. So, by the way, this is why Republicans are playing the, the sort of Biden's going to take away your burger thing right now. They're, they're, they, they, they see this as an opportunity, clearly a red meat issue. That yeah. oh, Biden, yeah, Biden's made no such proposal, but Republicans can see this as one of the sort of cultural things. What do you mean mm-hmm. you're going to attack our meat? It's, you know, it's a cultural narrative that I can have as much meat as I want because I'm an American. Yeah. But, you know, you know, we eat far more meat now than we did, you know, 30 years ago because we can. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's great you say that too, because I, I always like to cap off the episode with an action item. If you're a consumer and if you have the means, because we don't all have the means and Correct. some of us. You know, some of us can't afford to to do anything but kind of price shop when it comes to groceries, right? But if you have the means, look at where your food is sourced and look at your diet and right. you can adjust your diet in a way to be more ecologically uh, sensitive. Yeah. And I think number two, eat your leftovers. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave it a review. And if you haven't subscribed yet, There is no time like the present, so go ahead and subscribe now. Hop on board this crazy train. We need more people like you. Now, you can also find a write-up of today's episode, links to more resources from Chris, and other episodes by visiting ydhty.com and clicking on the link that says Episodes. It's located in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage. Now, a couple things to note about this episode. First off, 
Our desire to secure the food supply for farmers and consumers has had the inadvertent effect of contributing to the obesity epidemic, creating the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, and, oddly enough, incentivizing unsustainable farming practices that could actually jeopardize the food supply for farmers and consumers. Now, secondly, the fact that Republicans are secure in the farm belt without favorable policy towards farmers and the Democrats are so insecure that they don't have to care means the bill actually has no real friends in Congress. This being said, it doesn't have any enemies either unless the two parties decide to start talking to each other. So there's that. As always, music, courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHGY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHGY is painstakingly produced in North Carolina, United States of America, by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.